Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 24th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Well, the um, the new Mein Kampf project is up and running. It was activated the other night, I think Monday night, Tuesday night. Not quite all of the images were transferred over. I think I'm going to um, actually discard some images which were um, only posted there by some people that were managing those images for me that really don't have a point in being on my site because they come from um, Time Life Incorporated and, and well, they're nicely presented there and, and they are um, basically magazine pages and things like that that I don't, if I'm not going to write about the particular topic I don't want to just copy an archive. It, it's um meaningless to me. I do copy some things that I feel are um, endangered on the internet and, and maintain them on Christagenia. And, and that's for an entirely other purpose. The um, well, well, Christagenia has um, another small technological achievement this week. We have our own Android app now you could go to the um, Google Play Store and search for Christagenia Radio and install it for free under your phone. If you don't trust the Google Play Store, and of course there are probably good reasons not to trust it, and many people who don't, you can download the app from the front page of Christagenia. Eventually, there'll be a link to that from our um, radio page and our podcast archives and other appropriate places. Right now it's in an announcement on our front page. You could download the app there and install it onto your phone manually. And the instructions for doing that may vary from phone to phone or from Android tablet to tablet. I can't supply um, technical support for every individual device. Please don't ask. You'll have to look it up yourself. It's um, it'll only function on Android devices version 2.3 and higher. There's also a Kindle version of the app, which is only available so far at Christagenia.org. It has been tested and works fine on Melissa's Kindle. We've tested the Android app ourselves on about four or five cell phones and it works on on all of them the um the future will bring um more good things like that we hope to have an iphone app in the next couple of weeks maybe even sooner if i get some free time next week we'll see about that the epistles of paul 1 corinthians part 4 which we have subtitled the eternal spirit of man and we will get to that topic later in the program in our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 we saw that in Paul's writings the phrase mystery of God does not mean to identify a mystery about God 
but rather it pertains to what God had announced in the prophets concerning that which he would do with his people Israel. This, uh, this idea is encapsulated by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in his expression in verses 7 and 9 omitting the parenthetical remarks of verse 8 where he says, We speak wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor, just as it is written, things which I did not see and ear did not hear and came not into the heart of man. Those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. With this, we may indeed perceive that this mystery which Paul refers to relates not to our God, but to his plan for his people. Accompanied with that concept, we also saw that the spiritual things of Yahweh are revealed to us by his word. Further supporting this assertion is the very next verse of that chapter, verse 10, where Paul explained, that the things God has in store for his people are revealed to them through his spirit in concert with the word of God found in Zechariah chapter 7 where it quite notably refers to the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent in his spirit by the former prophets. With this we concluded that the words of the prophets are the will of Yahweh God expressed through his spirit so that his will could be transmitted to us in those words. And the words themselves are spiritual. From this we see the biblical concept of spiritual is indeed the essence of the word of God. In support of that conclusion, we cited Paul's own words to the Romans in chapter 7, 15, and 16 of his epistle to them. First he said that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, while contrasting the essence of the commandments in the written law to the lusts of the fleshly man. So we see that the essence of the commandments in the written law are what Paul meant by using the term spiritual. Then later Paul said to them that whatever things had been written before had been written for our instruction so that through patient endurance and the calling of the writings we may have expectation. Then Paul explained to them that the revelation of mystery having been kept secret in times eternal but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings which was in accordance with the command of the eternal God Romans chapter 16 so we see that our expectation comes from those things which Yahweh God had said through the prophets of the Old Testament that those things which Yahweh has prepared for them that love him are revealed 
through the prophets of the Old Testament, and that those things were being made manifest through the prophetic writings as Paul was preaching and writing to the Romans and to the Corinthians. Therefore, what is spiritual comes not from the minds or hearts of men, but from the word of Yahweh our God. From Proverbs chapter 1. Turn you with my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. The word of God is the only spiritual essence which truly matters. In the face of the word of God, the feelings of men are immaterial. The instruction of the Spirit, which Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians 2.13, comes through the writings of the Old Testament, and not through the feelings of men. With that, we will commence with 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3 And I, brethren have not been able to speak to you concerning the spiritual, but concerning the fleshly. Like infants in Christ, I have given you milk to drink, not food. Indeed, you were not able, but still now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. There is much speculation, many opinions, concerning what things should be considered the milk and what things should be considered the meat of the gospel. Further perspective on what Paul meant here is found in Hebrews chapter 5. And Paul says, For even you, speaking to the Hebrews, he was actually um, writing this, this epistle most assuredly as he was in prison in Caesarea. For even you are obliged to be teachers because of the time. Again, you have need of one to teach you from the beginning the many elements of the oracles of Yahweh, and have come having need of milk, not of solid food. For any who are partaking of milk are inexperienced of the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who through habit have the senses exercised for distinguishing good and evil. The Apostle Peter also used the analogy in chapter 2 of his first epistle where he wrote, Therefore putting off all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, as a newborn infant you must yearn for the pure rational milk in order that by it you would grow into preservation. If you taste or experience that the prince is benevolent. So we see from Paul that we exercise ourselves for distinguishing good and evil with the meat of the gospel. But we also see that even the milk, which is the light subject matter, would be sufficient to preserve us if we accepted it. To understand what Peter considered to be the milk of the gospel, we must simply observe what Peter had told his readers up to that point in his epistle and what he told them immediately after.
In the first chapter of that first epistle, Peter had explained to them that they had been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and for that reason, that they should abandon the folly of paganism and the disobedience to God which had gotten their fathers in trouble in the first place. He also told them that in Christ they have mercy and that their lives are spared in that mercy. While Peter does not fully explain in his first epistle how that redemption was achieved, a sufficient explanation of that is indeed found in the books of the prophets and in the letters of Paul, which Peter advocated in his second epistle. Here Peter told his intended readers that their souls having been purified in the obedience of the truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy, from of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly, they being the children of the same fathers, as Peter had mentioned in 1 Peter verse 18, then that brotherly love must be directed to their ethnic kinsmen, for that is the context of his epistle. And that context is more fully elucidated later in chapter 2, where he invokes Exodus chapter 19, calling his intended readers an elect race, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. And as we see in Peter, this message is only the milk of the gospel. The racial covenant message of the gospel is fundamental to an understanding of scripture. It is the milk and not the meat. And as it was with Peter, it was also with Paul. For Paul had explained in chapter 2 of this epistle to the Corinthians that he had already declared the mystery of God to these people, which is what God had done with his people Israel as he announced in the prophetic writings. Once we understand that the milk of the gospel is the purpose of the Christ and the announcement of his redemption to the children of cast-off Israel, as he promised them in the prophetic writings. Only then can we truly begin to understand or discern the meat of the gospel, which according to Paul trains our minds to distinguish what is good and what is evil. While some people, while most people, can see something as either good or bad according to the judgment of man, the true biblical identifications of good and evil go far beyond the simple categorization of singular acts. The racial covenant message is therefore a part of the milk of the scripture and not the meat. It is one of the fundamentals and needs to be understood first and not last. That Christ came and Christ became an exclusive sacrifice for the children of Israel in accordance with the word of God to be reconciled to the children of Israel. As Paul was explaining his purpose as that sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 5 when he spoke of that meat and milk. And Christ is the completion of those fundamentals. But that is the fundamental milk aspect of scripture. Not the meat. There's a lot more to Christianity 
once we get past the race issue, once we get past the understanding of the purpose of Christ. Sadly, in this day and age, it's difficult to achieve that. Where among you are rivalry and contention and dissension? Are you not fleshly and walk in accordance with man? For when one may say, I am of Paul, but another, I am of Apollos, are you not human? And I'm going to rankle some feathers with, with, with the commentary on this passage. First, the phrase, and dissension, in verse 3, is wanting in some manuscripts. At the end of uh, verse 4, the plural word, anthropoi, which is literally man, is rendered as human. In the, King, in the Christogenian New Testament, since it is used in contrast, in opposition to the word pneumaticus, which is spiritual, in verse 1. Some of the later manuscripts, and the majority text here, has the word sarkikoi, or fleshly, but the King James Version does not follow the majority text in verse 4, and it also has anthropoi. A digression is required here in order to address a contention over the English word human. There are many lies of convenience which are taught as truths in churches and certainly in government schools. And Christian identity is certainly not immune to having its own. Many identity believers have somehow been taught that the English word human comes from the words hue as a color and man, and that it refers to the colored races, the non-Adamic or non-white races. While it is often a convenient analogy because of the way that the word human is abused today, and it is abused, the assertion is nevertheless ridiculous, and such assertions, while they are convenient, only serve to discredit Christian identity as a whole. The word human does not come from the word hue, compounded with the word man. It certainly does not. That is simply a um, a convenient misunderstanding and a coincidence. While we would wholeheartedly agree that the so-called non-white or non-Adamic races are not on the level of Adamic man when measured by the characteristics which enable the white Adamic race to be developers of civilizations and the builders of many wonderful things. And therefore, the non-Adamic races, if we want to call them races, are not even truly human. We would also assert that it is not proper to defile the meaning of the word human to describe the non-white races. They should not be called humans. It's an error to do so. Even if I've done it in the past, I was wrong. The non-white races are not human. 
It's a Jewish piece of Jewish propaganda to include them as human. The English word human actually derives from an associated group of Latin words. And the following list of these words and their definitions are taken from the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Troutman. Humane. Like a human being, it's an adverb. Politely, gently, with compassion. Humanitas, the Latin word, means human nature, humanity, kindness, compassion, human feeling, courtesy, culture, refinement, civilization. So far, I don't see any niggers in these definitions. Humanitaire means like a human being, reasonably, gently, with compassion. Humanitas, humanly, humanely, kindly, compassionately. Humanus, of a human being, human, humane, kind, compassionate, courteous, cultured, refined, civilized. Human is simply a word borrowed from English into Latin. These terms describe what the Romans would consider to be a friendly, cultured, gentle, loving, kind, caring, and therefore civilized fellow citizen. These words did not describe the beasts of the so-called other races who for the most part dwelt far outside the Roman oikumene, the Roman world, the Roman dwelling space, especially those in Africa, which the Greek historian Greek Diodorus Siculus described as total savages. In his Library of History, Book 3, Chapter 8, Paragraph 1, Diodorus Siculus wrote, after he speaks of the cultured white people of Ethiopia, he wrote, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians, some of them dwelling in the land lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, which to the Greeks, Arabia was all the land in between the Nile and the Persian Gulf, and others residing in the interior of Libya, which to the Greeks was the rest of Africa. And, and here would immediately refer to Sudan. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another, and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. Theodore Siculus certainly would not have considered niggers to be human.
In modern times, if any of the so-called other races exhibit any of the human qualities at any given time, it is only because the constraints of our Christian society has been imposed upon them and not because they are naturally inclined to exhibit these qualities. For someone to make legit, to make legitimate the ludicrous claim that human means huge man, it must be established that the component syllables had such a meaning in Latin first. Because the word is a Latin word. It's actually a whole group of Latin words. But it certainly does not have that meaning in Latin. Lies of convenience, while, while, while it's easy to poke fun of the Jewish word of the word, the Jewish use of the word human, lies of convenience in the long run discredit Christians and also corrupt rather than edifying a proper Christian worldview. The non-Adamic races are certainly not humanitas or humane as the Romans used the term and therefore they cannot be human. Theodorus Siculus would certainly agree. The purpose of the use of the word human here in the Christogenian New Testament was to illustrate the contrast with the word spiritual which Paul had used earlier in verse 1. Rivalry, contention, and dissension are from the hearts of men and not from the Spirit of God within them. These things also lead men to follow after others rather than following after Christ. We have long seen this in Christianity and especially within Christian Israel identity. One man says something which others may dislike and the response is, Oh, I'll go listen to so-and-so instead. He doesn't teach that. Oh, I'll go listen to that clown Joe November. He doesn't teach that my bastard half-black grandchild is going to hell. I don't have to hear that from him, so I'll go listen to him. I'll go listen to this guy or that guy because they don't teach that this is evil or that that is evil. They don't mention that chapter of scripture, so I could go listen to them because they're tickling my ears. We see that all the time. That's what Paul's talking about here. This attitude leads to the very sectarianism for which Paul is criticizing the Corinthians in this epistle. Men are prone to measuring a man's words against other men when they should be measuring a man's words against the scripture because the scripture is our rule. The scripture is our measure. It is a notable thing to disdain a man who is teaching anything which is contrary to Christ. Those men should certainly be ostracized. But it is a deceitful thing 
to disdain, to disdain a man who is teaching from scriptures things which one may not really want to hear. You should hear it. If it's the word of God, you shouldn't care about how it affects you personally. A man can deceive himself with the imaginings of his own heart. But in the end, he is certainly not going to deceive God. If all Christians sought to agree with Christ rather than with one another, there would be far fewer divisions and the body of Christ would indeed begin to become manifest in the world. I had to take that digression on the word human because that's been a, um, well, a sort of long-standing heresy in Christian identity. It's easy to repeat that human, ne- human means huge man. And the way that Jews use the term, well, it may as well mean that. But when a Christian repeats that, and, and he's reproved by someone who understands the development of our language, then you are actually setting a trap for a brother. You're not edifying him. Scholarship sh- should be honest. And even if something that's a lie of convenience sounds real good and we want to believe it's true... We should check it out, and if it's not true, we shouldn't repeat it. And we shouldn't even repeat it in jest, because brethren that don't understand our jest and don't know the truth can actually be trapped. When somebody whips out an American Heritage College Dictionary and shows them where the word human comes from, and they can't, establish their point with any academic authority, well, then you're causing a brother to be entrapped rather than edifying him. And we we end up, we meaning Christian identity, we end up looking stupid. We can't do that. We have a very solid foundation for our beliefs. And we should make sure that every inch in the footing of the house that we build upon that foundation is on that solid ground. So who is Apollos? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. So who is Apollos? And who is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed. And to each as the prince has given. Now the majority text transposes the words Paul and Apollos here. And it adds the word but before servants to make the entire clause which follows a part of the question or a single question. That does not change the intention of the writer. Ostensibly, Every teacher of the Word of God has different gifts. And every listener has tendencies to learn better from one teacher or another, or to learn more. 
However, we are all, alternatively, teachers and students at one time in our lives or another. And therefore, we are all brethren who should seek to follow the one master which we all have, who is Christ. Apollos and Paul may each have had different methods, different ways of teaching the scripture, different examples from the Old Testament, which they preferred to employ in their teaching. But the important thing is this. They may have had their own special topics that they like to teach about. Some teachers teach better with moral issues and issues of the law. Others do better with scriptural history and, and, and fulfillment of prophecy or whatever. But the important thing is this, that they were all teaching the same gospel. As Paul told the Galatians, I am astonished the Galatians were following after the Judaizers, the Judaizers in Antioch, which Paul had confronted before he wrote this epistle to the Galatians. And he said, I am astonished, seeing that so quickly you are changed from he who has been calling you in favor of the anointed, meaning Christ, to another gospel, which is no other, except there are some who are agitating you and wish to pervert the gospel of the anointed. But even if we, or a messenger from heaven, should announce a gospel to you contrary to that which we have announced to you, he must be accursed. Just as we have said before, now also I say again, if anyone brings you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, he must be accursed. And here's the important part. Now, therefore, do I persuade man or Yahweh, or do I seek to please man? Yet, if I were pleasing to man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul taught the true gospel because it agreed with the gospel of Christ and the words of the prophets. Any gospel which does not have that complete cohesion with the word of God is a lie. And those who perpetrate it are indeed accursed. Verse 6. I had planted... Apollos has watered, but Yahweh has given increase, so that neither he who is planting is anybody, nor he who is watering, but Yahweh who is making to grow. Both he who is planting and he who is watering are alike, but each will receive his own reward in accordance with his own toil. The phrase, are alike, comes from the Greek phrase, hen-i-sin, which literally means they are one. Joseph Thayer discusses the idiom in his Greek-English lexicon at the entry for heis, which means one. 
Hen is a form of heis. It's the accusative form. Where he explains that it means that the two are of the same importance and esteem. One is not greater than the other. Even if one is better known, even if one is better liked, even if one is perceived by men to be a better teacher, the two are alike. They are equal parts because they are brethren. The phrase, they are equals, would not be inappropriate. From Matthew, chapter 23, But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and ye are all brethren, or all ye are brethren. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's not better than Apollos. Apollos isn't better than him. The Corinthians shouldn't have to choose one or the other, which leads to sectarianism. They should measure each man's words against the gospel of Christ and follow both equally because we're all equals. And they, being true teachers of the gospel, are both following Christ. From Luke chapter 9, from verse 23. Then he, meaning Christ, said to all, If anyone wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross each day, and he must follow me. To plant and to water is more than just to talk or to evangelize. As plants need constant watering, and as cultivated plants need constant attention, like weeding and pruning. One must become a living example of Christ himself, giving oneself each day in every aspect of life for the edification of one's brethren and using the peculiar talents or abilities that one is granted from God for the benefit of God's people. But all men should be servants for Christ and not seek to make themselves masters or rulers or exalt themselves over any other man. From Mark chapter 9, And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. The planter is no better than he who is watering. For they all brethren, they are all like brethren, working for the same master, who rewards his servants according to his will. And Paul says in verse 9, For we are fellow workmen of Yahweh, Yahweh's husbandry. You are Yahweh's building. In accordance with the favor of Yahweh, that has been given to me as a skilled architect I have laid a foundation whereas another builds it up but each must look at how he builds it up the apostles are the workmen for the harvest of Yahweh's field of wheat which is what Paul means by husbandry from Luke chapter 10 
from verse 1 after these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two and two sent them in pairs before his face into every city and place where he himself would come therefore he said unto them the harvest is great but the laborers are few pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest here Paul's first analogy for those seeking to build the Christian ecclesia is to husbandmen however his second analogy is in his considering himself to be an architect the King James Version has master builder however we chose to transliterate the Greek word which is architecton which is literally a chief builder in Acts chapter 4 Peter wanting to reference the principal men of Judea in comparison to a certain prophecy about builders speaking to the high priests and the other rulers who should have been edifying the people and guiding them in the way had compared them to builders in reference to a miraculous healing which had happened outside of the temple in Acts chapter 4 Peter said be it known unto you unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead even by him does this man stand here before you whole this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders which is become the head of the corner neither is there any salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved Peter likened the ecclesia the body of Christ to a stone building in his first epistle where he again makes allusions to that same prophecy the stone which the builders rejected having become the chief cornerstone which is found in Psalm 118 from 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter speaks of Christ he says to whom coming in other words when the child of Israel approaches him to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ wherefore also it is contained in the scripture behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he that believes on him shall not be confounded unto you therefore which he which believe he is precious but unto them who are disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed the same is made the head, is made the head of the corner and the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed meaning that they were expected 
They were, they were reprobates expected to be disobedient. And I believe, as a, as a, another, um, digression, I believe that the Great Pyramid of Egypt, built in ancient times without a capstone, was a type for Christ. That's a different story. So Paul's analogy of himself to a chief builder is an appropriate one. Especially since he was the apostle chosen to go to the nations of dispersed Israel with the gospel, taking one stone, one living stone at a time, and placing it into the building atop the foundation of the body of Christ. Paul's building tools were the gospel and the prophets as he indicates here. Other builders would come along after him and add to this building. Paul's intention was the intention of Christ, where Christ said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me, or draw all unto me. Paul's intention was to build a new building atop the foundation of Christ, that a new Christian society would eventually emerge and supplant the old world orders. This is the original grassroots movement, right? All these commie bastards today that love to promote grassroots politics... Christianity is the type for that. The spread of Christianity in Rome was the original grassroots movement. When Rome made Christianity the religion of the empire, it only corrupted it, molding Christian language and imagery onto the old world order, but never actually being Christian in substance. It then forced itself onto the real Christian society, which was the collection of independent Christian assemblies that had developed over the early centuries of the Christian era. Therefore, regardless of how powerful it became, Rome was destined to fail from the beginning because it was not built on the foundation which Paul was building upon. Verse 11. For another foundation, no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. Here Paul offers a succinct condemnation of both Judaism and paganism. Of course, he would have also condemned Roman Catholicism, but it wasn't around in his time. Christ is the physical manifestation of Yahweh God. He is the author of life. He is the only hope, way, and truth for the Adamic race. As we read in John chapter 14, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, except by me. Christ in his gospel 
are the foundation upon which any white Adamic society must be built or it will not stand. When Christ told Simon Peter that he was a stone, of Petros. He was telling Peter he was a stone. The kind of little stone that you pick up and throw. That was what a Petros was. That is why Peter used that analogy in his epistle. That he was merely a stone placed in the building of the Christian Ecclesia. When Christ told Simon Peter that he was a stone. He exclaimed that he would build his ecclesia upon a rock. He was that rock, or Petra, which Paul attests in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and which Peter attests in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Now, there's also contention. Somebody made up the crazy idea that Petra is a feminine noun in Greek, and Petros is a masculine noun. So Petros must refer to Yahshua Christ, the person, and Petra must refer to the assembly. That's not true. While it is true that Petros is a masculine noun, and Petra is a feminine noun, that is true, but the gender of the word doesn't regulate the definition. It simply doesn't. Petros, the Greeks were used the masculine form of the word in Petros to describe the stone that you could pick up. And if you pick up maybe 10,000 of them, you could make a building. Or you could take the stone and throw it. That's a Petros. But the Petra, the feminine form of the noun, the Greeks used that form to describe bedrock, the huge boulder ledges of rock that we find under the ground that we can actually um, consider to be, from the perspective of men, generally immovable, that we could build great things upon them and they wouldn't sink like if we built those things on sand. And the proof of this interpretation lies right in the gospel because when when Paul said that Christ was the rock, he used the term Petra several times. And so did Peter in 1 Peter 2.8. If Christ is the stone of stumbling, and the rock of offense. The Greek in that word rock is Petra. In one, in one Corinthians, in chapter 10, Paul said of the people in the Exodus that they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Some people want to interpret the word Petra as referring to the assembly, then Paul would be saying in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the assembly drank of itself. And that makes no sense whatsoever. Read that and consider it.
That rock in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that rock was Christ. He is the bedrock foundation. And that is what Paul is also saying here. And when Christ told Peter, upon this Petra, I will build my assembly, he told Peter that he was a Petros, a stone. When he said, upon this Petra, I will build my church, he was certainly referring to himself and his word. What we have to consider when we read the gospel is that we can read the words, but we cannot see the motions and the physical indications that we are being, that, that, that are, make the meanings of the words more evident. But Christ was referring to himself and to his word. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it. Because in fire it is revealed, and of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. In the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke, there was an account of John the Baptist, and the people wondered whether he was the Christ, because many people in Judea understood that Daniel's seventy weeks were closing, and they expected the Messiah. John replied and said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. The Apostle Peter said in the first chapter of his first epistle, Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead, for an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, being kept in the heavens for us who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh, through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time in which you must rejoice, if for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ, whom not having seen, you love, and whom not now seeing, but believing, you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls. The Christian faith is the faith of Abraham, as Paul described it in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was deemed righteous because he believed God. 
The test of one's faith comes when Christians put their belief in God into practice and keep his commandments as Abraham had done. Christ told the Judeans that if they were the children of Abraham, then they would do the works of Abraham. Peter was referring to the word of God held in common by all Christians. It is not the individual's degree of belief which matters in relation to his salvation. If the individual puts his faith into practice, then through his actions he stores up for himself treasure in heaven, as Christ attested in the Gospels. As for salvation itself, it is what the Word of God says in relation to the children of Israel which matters, because he has attested that no man can take his sheep from his hand. John chapter 10, 27-29 The end result of our walk in Christ is the works of our lives tried in the fire of judgment. And that which Paul refers to here is described by Peter in the third chapter of his second epistle where he wrote, speaking of the scoffers, for this willingly escapes them that the heavens were from old and the earth from out of the water and through water had been put together by the word of Yahweh by which the society at that time was destroyed, having been inundated with water. But now the heavens and the earth are being preserved by the same word, being kept for fire, for a day of judgment and destruction of the impious men. But you must not forget this one thing, beloved, that one day with the prince is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The prince does not delay the promise, as some regard delay, but has forbearance for us, not wishing for any to be destroyed, but that all should have space for repentance. But the day of the prince shall come as a thief, at which the heavens shall pass away with a rushing noise, and the elements shall dissolve with burning heat, and the earth and the works in it shall be discovered. Thusly, with all of these things being dissolved in such manner, it is necessary for you to be holy in holy conduct and piety, expecting and being anxious for the coming of the day of Yahweh, on which account on account of which the heavens being ablaze shall dissolve, and the elements melt burning with heat. But we may expect new heavens and a new earth, according to his promise, in which righteousness dwells. To repeat the last two verses of Peter's, of Paul's words here, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it. The same day Peter talked about in that epistle to Peter chapter 3. Because in fire it is revealed, and of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. Laying gold and silver 
and precious stones onto the foundation of Christ. We do good works for the body of Christ. And as Peter said, we would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Christ. Now a man may spend his life laying nothing but wood, hay, and straw upon the foundation of Christ. And all his works shall be consumed in the fire of judgment. While not having done anything of merit for the body of Christ, he has no treasure stored up in heaven. And therefore he has no reward. However, it must be remembered just how sinful the ancient children of Israel were when Yahweh God cast them off from the kingdom. But the word of God spoke of those same people in Hosea of that same sinful Israel where Yahweh said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. I will redeem them from death. Repentance, I'm sorry, repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. And that last phrase means that, O grave, I will be thy destruction, and I'm not changing my mind. Repentance at destroying the grave shall be hid from mine eyes. Then in Micah, the word of Yahweh says, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. There should be no doubt, as the word of Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 45, that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory, even if you have no good works. You yourself will be preserved. And in that manner, Paul continues here in 1 Corinthians in verse 14. If the work of anyone who has built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, having no good works, nothing but wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and straw, if the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. So we see that even if a man has no good works, his whole life, that everything he did came to nothing, he himself will still be preserved. Otherwise, what is the point of the words of Yahweh and the prophets that Israel, that sinful Israel, that unrepentant, bow-worshipping, whoremongering Israel from the days of Ahaz and Jezebel and Manasseh and all those wicked people, what is the 
point that they would be ransomed from the grave, that all their sins would be cast into the sea. Here we shall quote from the opening verses of Daniel chapter 12. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Ostensibly the book is the book of life of the revelation, and after all men are judged for their works, death and hell, as well as whoever is not found written in the book, all go to the lake of fire. The lack of reward which Paul describes certainly seems to be congruent to the everlasting contempt of Daniel chapter 12. That contempt being everlasting and that awakening from the dust of the earth must be permanent. We would, al- we would also assert that the book of life must be congruent with the word of life, which is found in our Bibles. Christ is the word made flesh. Only the race of Adam being the subject of the word of life. The word man in Revelation is congruent to the word Adam in the opening chapters of Genesis. The non-Adamic so-called races and all of the enemies of Yahweh God are not found in any of the promises of the word of life. And therefore, they cannot be written in the book of life. From the wisdom of Solomon, from chapter 2. And this wisdom of Solomon certainly should be a part of our scripture. Right smack between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. That's where I would put it. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world. And they that hold of his side do find it. Solomon is referring to the creation of the Adamic man found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That God created man to be immortal as God is immortal. Man is in the image of God. In order to understand the image and likeness of God, in order to understand what the wisdom of Solomon is referring to concerning death, we must turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we will read two pericopes from this chapter, the first from verse 1, the second from verse 17. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yeah, as God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. 
but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in a day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. With this, the man and the woman did eat of the tree. And in their transgression, they would die, as Yahweh dispensed his punishment. And he said, Unto Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. The serpent is the devil, as we learn from Revelation chapter 12. It was the devil who deceived Eve, and Adam followed after her, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore, the disobedience and death of man is attributed to the works of the devil. Ostensibly, as we may learn from the apocryphal books such as 1 Enoch, which the apostles had also quoted in their epistles, or from episodes in Genesis such as that found in Genesis chapter 6, aside from the death of man, the miscegenation of God's creation was also among the works of the devil. However, Christ, as we are told, came to destroy the works of the devil. From 1 John chapter 3, from verse 7, Children, let no one deceive you. He who is bringing about justice is just, even as he, meaning Christ, is just. He who is creating error or sin is from of the devil. Since the devil sins from the beginning, for this... The Son of Yahweh has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the devil or the false accuser. Paul also mentioned this in Hebrews chapter 2 and we will read from verse 11. For both he sanctifying, meaning Christ, and those being sanctified, meaning Israel, are all sprung from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will announce your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And again, I will be confident in him. And again, Behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me. Therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same, that through death he would annul 
him having the power of death, that is, the devil, and he would release them, as many as whom in fear of death lived throughout all of their lives and were subject as slaves. Genesis chapters 3 and 6 both describe episodes of fornication or miscegenation, race mixing with the so-called fallen angels and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The proofs of these are in many other papers at Christagenia. Of course, I cannot elucidate all of this this evening. These are the works of the devil. Those angels depicted as having rebelled from God in Revelation chapter 12 and as having left their first estate in the children of Jude. Since Yahweh created the Adamic man to be immortal and since Yahweh never created any bastards, if the works of the devil are to be destroyed, then all Adamic men must live and all bastards must be destroyed. As Christ answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up because all of our Adamic race was to be, was created to be immortal, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, where he says, for this reason, just as by one man, meaning Adam, sin entered into the society, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men on account that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam through Moses. Even over those who had not committed a sin resembling the transgression of Adam who is an image of the future. And to skip to verse 16, Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation. Christ was condemned on our behalf. But the favor is from many transgressions, all of the sins of men, into a judgment of acquittal. For if in the transgression of one, meaning Adam, Death has taken reign through that one. Much more is the advantage of favor and the gift of justice they are receiving. In life, they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men, meaning all of Adam kind, for a sentence of condemnation, the transgression of Adam, in this manner, then, through one decision of judgment, Christ on the cross, he decided to die, to submit himself to that judgment. For all men is for a judgment of life. 
Therefore, even, and Paul keeps repeating this to get it through our thick heads, therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many, meaning all Adamic men, as he said in verse 18, were set down as wrongdoers in this manner, then through the obedience of one, the many, meaning all Adamic men, will be established as righteous. Likewise, Paul summarized the scriptural truth very briefly, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 summarizes Romans chapter 5. The immortal Adam, the immortal Adam is an image of the future, as Paul professes in Romans 5.14. This is accomplished because the spirit which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic man is immortal, and resurrection is through that spirit which we shall see. Paul explain here later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse Do not know that you are a temple of Yahweh and that the Spirit of Yahweh dwells in you. If anyone should spoil the temple of Yahweh, Yahweh will spoil the same. Indeed, The temple of Yahweh is holy, such as which you are. No one must deceive himself. If one supposes to be wise among you in this age, he must become foolish in order that he may become wise. From Genesis chapter 2, from verse 7. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Solomon talks about the death of a man when he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. In Isaiah chapter 52, we see a messianic prophecy, and it says from verse 10, Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean 
and we won't repeat the words in italics, which are added to the text. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. King James Version. That bear the vessels of Yahweh. Where Isaiah made reference to ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. He wasn't talking about people with cups and bowls and jugs and other implements. There weren't a bunch of people running out of Babylon with cups and bowls and jugs. Rather, he was talking about those people who had the spirit of Yahweh in them. Because not all spirits, as we see in the fourth chapter of John's first epistle, come from God. Not all spirits. John was talking about embodied spirits. And not all of the people here have spirits from God. Most of the people in the world have spirits which came from the world. Not from God. Isaiah was talking about those people who have the spirit of Yahweh God in them. That they are the vessels. And in the context of Isaiah, that refers to the Adamic children of Israel. The Adamic man has within him an immortal spirit which is of the essence of God himself. Therefore, the Adamic body is a vessel for that spirit which is the true person. And we will see a lot more of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where Christ said to the Judeans, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.19 He was talking about the temple of his body. That vessel which contained his spirit. In the ancient world, the temple buildings were seen as houses for the gods. Your body is the house for a spirit from God, if indeed you are a child of God. The body itself is the temple for those who have the spirit of the living God. And if you don't, then you're a broken cistern. Verse 19. For the wisdom of this society is folly before Yahweh. Indeed, it is written, He seizes the cunning in their villainy, or as the King James Version has it, the wise in their craftiness. Here Paul quotes from Job, chapter 5. And from there we shall read a slightly longer pericope to see the context of Paul's quote. Job says, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them, whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even out of the thorns, and the robber swallows up their substance. And, and the picture is this, the hungry and the robber devour the children of a foolish man. The hungry and the robber, however, are themselves apparently not candidates for repentance. 
although affliction comes not forth of the dust, neither does trouble spring up out of the ground. It comes from people, right? Although, I'm sorry, yet a man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things, and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who gives rain upon the earth, and sends waters upon the fields, to set up on high those that be low, and those which mourn may be exalted to safety. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. He disappoints the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He takes the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the noonday as in the night. In other words, they are blind, and will stay blind. Those who deny God in their worldly wisdom will all eventually fall in their own blindness. Verse 20, And again, Yahweh knows the reasonings of the cunning, that they are vain. And here Paul seems to be paraphrasing Psalm 9411, where it says, Yahweh knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. The verses of the psalm which follow, verses 12 and 13 and 14, Read thus, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Yahweh, and teaches him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked. For Yahweh will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. The Adamic man is evidently subject to transience in order to learn the consequences of sin, as we explained at length in our recent presentations of Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, being chastised, the entire Adamic race will benefit from that lesson in the resurrection. But there will only be a pit for the wicked. Those who are cunning or wise on their own accounts will fall into that pit. Consequently, verse 21, not one should boast in man. Indeed, all is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, Cephas is the Hebrew form of Petros, which is stone in Hebrew. And Paul refers to Peter as Cephas several times in his epistles, probably affectionately. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or society or life or death or present or future, all is yours, but you of Christ and anointed of Yahweh. This last verse may alternately be read, but you will be anointed and anointed of Yahweh, or by Yahweh, or as the King James Version has it, but you of Christ and Christ of Yahweh, but Christ is Yahweh. Abraham's seed shall indeed inherit the earth, 
And the children of Israel are guaranteed life in Christ. The adversaries will not prevail. And they will have life in Christ regardless of the life they have lived since on the account of one man, all Adamic men, as Job puts it, are born into trouble. Yet, on account of Christ, all Adamic men are saved out of it. All men being in fault, we should not be followers of men, but we should all seek to follow Christ. I'll be here tomorrow night. Brother Ryan, walking the walk. Next Friday, 1 Corinthians, part 5. Next Saturday, open lines. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night. Call recording has been completed.